everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, which is a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today I am joined by the wonderful Lisa Wardle. I'm super excited to have Lisa on our podcast today. Lisa, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's so fun to see you and chat with you. It's fun to see you too. It's been a long time. Uh, Just where in the world are you today? Today, I'm in rainy Boston, Massachusetts. Rainy Boston, Massachusetts. And that's your home and your place of employment? That is my home and my place of employment. Yes. And do you work from home now during this whole COVID thing? Or do you go into an office and then you come home in the evenings? I'm a pro at working from home right now. Uh, I've been, this is my sixth week, so I'm enjoying it, sort of. Uh, I don't know if you're very familiar with Boston traffic, but my commute right now is really glorious. And my commute on regular days is not so glorious. So I'm loving that. I don't know what's happened there in Boston, but here the traffic in Salt Lake City, I mean, it's reduced quite a bit because everybody is basically sheltering in place, even though we don't have a formal formal uh, shelter in place order here. Mm-hmm. But have you noticed any reduction in traffic there in Boston as well? Oh, it's uh, it's amazing. I enjoy driving for for the whole for the full four years that I've lived here. I've wanted to um, drive the marathon route, the Boston marathon route. I mean, really, an ambitious person would run the marathon route. I just wanted to drive it. Um, because I've, you know, the marathon is a great part of the culture here and it's a fun day. Patriot Day is a fun day here. Anyway, so I haven't been able to do that because the traffic's so terrible. And I finally did that last Saturday, uh, a week and a half ago, right before Patriot's Day. So it was great. It's a beautiful route. Um, it was an easy drive. My time was amazing, 57 minutes. Um, so I feel like I won the marathon. You know, what amazes me is that people can actually run that route in just over twice that time. (laughs) I can't. I can drive it. Uh, I could drive it in twice that time, but I could not run it in twice that time. I mean, to be able to drive it in an hour. So you say 57 minutes. Yeah. And then you think, oh, but people run it in two hours. Two hours. Yeah. Two hours. That blows my mind. Blows my mind. Now, what are you doing currently in terms of employment there in Boston? Who are you working for? I work for Nike Inc. And I'm here at Converse. Nike owns Converse. And so I'm on the on the Nike talent team. And um, I've been here for four years and I love it. I'm learning a ton, having great experiences. Um, you know, with this whole COVID thing going around, has Nike been significantly impacted by this virus? And has it made any substantial changes to the work that you're doing on a day-to-day basis? That's a great question. So, of course, we've been impacted because we are a global company. And I think every every global company has been impacted. So we have been doing uh, a rolling um, sequence of sheltering in place. So it started in China and it moved to uh, Western Europe, and now it's in America. So we have been responding to that with work from home in each of those countries and in all of the countries in which we do work, which is um, uh, so many com- so many countries with headquarters in the U.S. and Shanghai and EMEA. Our stores are closed in many places. They're not open in very many places. The nice thing is, is we have a digital presence. And so we've been able to be 
fairly agile in uh, response to what's going on, but still, I think it's a big it's a big deal to be closing stores when you're a retail company. It's a big deal, no matter who you are, Nike, whomever. And it, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm finding that I don't even put on shoes right now, so I worry that our, I mean, our business is non essential, clearly, but um, just you know, how do you recover and I think about the number of times I've put on shoes and I'm like, it's not very many compared to the number I have in my closet. <laughs> I won't ask you how many shoes you have in your closet. <laughs> okay. Well, I can give you this. I can give you this insight. When I started here, I had never owned a pair of Converse, which is embarrassing. Um, and I also think that I was, I, I felt like I was just a normal person. I had one pair of workout shoes and I now have uh, probably a hundred. So holy cow! <laughs> I know it's a little obnoxious. It's ridiculous, and it's um, it's embarrassing. Yeah, but you're taking advantage of employee discounts, I assume. Of course, of course, yes. Yeah, you're doing your part to keep the company profitable. Well, I gotta be cool <laughs> or look cool. Well, and you Even gotta fit in too, right? You gotta you gotta evangelize exactly. your product. Exactly. All right. Well. We could we could talk for days about what's going on right now, but we're here to talk about Salt Lake 2002. And I see you've got a poster frame behind you. I do. From Salt Lake 2002. What's that poster? This is a poster from the Cultural Olympiad. And I liked it uh, at the time. And so I had it framed. This is, I don't know. Can you tell what that is? That's the, I don't even know if I'm going to say this right, but Polobolus. And it was a group that came, a group of dancers that came and were part of the um, uh, Cultural Olympiad. Who was the, Ray Grant, I think, ran that. And so this was just a poster from that. So the Olympic rings formed by some dancers. Let's go back in time to those days, the late 90s, the early 2000s. And what I'd like to do is start off before you worked for SLOC, what were you doing and how did you end up working with the organizing committee? It's a great question. I was in graduate school in New York City before the games. I had gone to, um, gone to graduate school in 1998. And when I finished, I interviewed, I went on the interview circuit for the, that the school put on and just did all of the rounds and all of the dog and pony show. And I didn't really love any of the places that I was going because I was interviewing at all of the consulting firms doing the, you know, they just go for a big group of um, recent graduates and you're in a program and it didn't feel great to me and I wasn't aspiring to that. And, uh, so I, I left without having a job and I moved back to Salt Lake and I didn't really know what I was going to do. So I just started doing some consulting and I was consulting for, uh, a woman who found out about this job and she said, you need to go interview at the Olympics. And I said, well, why would I want to interview at the Olympics? I just finished graduate school. And she said, please just do me a favor, go interview for the Olympics. And I remember thinking, I don't even know, like, I knew nothing about the Olympics. I knew nothing about this other than there was a story that I heard distantly that there was some scandal. Uh, that's all I knew. 
So I, I was a little bit worried about that and didn't really want to be associated with a scandalous organization. Uh, but I went and interviewed, I went, showed up at my interview and I walked into the building. It was in the, what's the building called on, um, I can't remember the name of our building. It was the American Stores Tower. Yes, but before that, was it always that? Well, it's Wells Fargo now, but it yes. used to be American Stores okay, that's back what in I'm the day. About. Wells Fargo, American Stores Tower. And I walked into the 13th floor and was hit by this energy in the building. And I panicked. I thought, this feels like the coolest place. Like I, I couldn't put my finger on what it was. It was just this energy. And I thought, this is a great place. I want to work here. And then my panic was based on, I didn't prepare for the interview. So, um, turns out that I ended up getting the job and, um, ended up loving it there and was super happy that, uh, somehow some miracle turned down in my favor that day. And I got the job. I wasn't prepared to interview for. Well, what was that job? And I want to actually take a little step back because you mentioned that you went to graduate school in, in New York City. And if I recall, that wasn't just any graduate school. It was Columbia University. And um, the job that, that you interviewed for and the job that you took, was that aligned with the uh, studies that you had there at Columbia? Or was it in a different area than, than your formal studies? I didn't think that it was aligned which is why I was a little hesitant to go and interview. I was thinking to myself, you know, I just got this graduate degree and I want to use my graduate degree and I'm, I'm going to be working for an events company or a circus. I didn't really know what the Olympics was about as a business, as a business model, as a, as a global movement. I had, I really had no idea. I enjoyed watching the Olympics my whole life, but I didn't know a lot about it. Uh, so I went into the interview thinking it wasn't lined up with my graduate degree, which was in organizational psychology or industrial and organizational psychology. It turns out that it was because my job at the Olympics was to um, manage the, the transition. Um, what did they call it? They called it transition management. Um, my job was to retain the workforce. And we did that through a creative program that the organizing committee uh, and the HR team there created, and I got to implement it and carry it out and ended up being a ton of fun and ended up being right down my alley um, or the alley of industrial and organizational psychology. Uh, so it was, it turned out to be great learning and great experience. And I couldn't have asked for a better, a better thing to add to my resume. And I didn't know that going into it. People who work for the Salt Lake Organizing Committee probably remember you as the person who was helping with this outplacement. You know, um, yeah. we need to find jobs after the games are over. Everybody knew when they joined the organizing committee that it was a temporary assignment, that the games would happen, they would end, and then everybody had to go find something else to do. How did you develop the strategy for this placement program, and how did you find partners out in the community who would be willing to hire the SLOC staff once they rolled off their Olympic jobs? So I'll break that down in the, your two questions. I'll answer the, the first one, which is how did we go about designing this? It was a combination of uh, a call, you know, from Mitt Romney to make this happen. One of the things that he had asked for was he didn't want to lose any of his good workforce. A hundred percent retention. 
and then Ed and Tammy, um, Bivan and Darren, I think were involved. Uh, and they created sort of a vision for what, what they wanted to have happen. And, and then my job was to make it happen, which was, I mean, their vision was great. And I came in at the point where they said, here's what, here is the need. Here's what we're going for. Here's the goal. We need someone to carry forward this, this agenda. And so within that um, vision, I got to create along with Tammy B. Van. She, she goes by Tam now, but at the time, Tammy B. Van, um, carry forward a plan and working with the HR team and making it happen. We, we relied on the help of a lot of people. We went to the community and we um, asked for people to be um, job search coordinators. We had four onsite coaches and their job was to help our full-time paid staff with anything related to the job search. We created a, we created a uh, onsite training program for our 1,200 employees we did online scheduling for training and for job applications. And then we brought companies inside to interview before the games happened so that people didn't have to leave the premises. They could focus on their job. So we did everything we could to surround people with, uh, with the things that they would need to feel prepared and confident that some things about their future were being taken care of while they focused on their job. And then we also had the retention side of things with the benefits and with the pay and, um, uh, Alice in paradise managed that. And so between the, the, the different members of the HR team, I think it was one of the most robust transition plans that I've ever seen before or since, because it was incredibly generous. It was incredibly thoughtful and it was, um, focused on the needs of the staff of the, of the full-time paid staff at the time. Uh, so I think it was what they needed. Well, I think so too. I don't know if you've got statistics, but I'm curious how many people actually were placed in jobs. I know I just last week uh, spoke with uh, one of our former counterparts, uh, Sophia Kaderi, um, who ended up getting a job at Warner Brothers through that. It was a job that I had actually interviewed for, but I couldn't move to Southern California because of family. <laughs> I do and, remember that. And, I do uh, remember that. Yeah. And, and Sophia got that job. And, and so she's just one of many, I'm sure uh, wow. people who were ended up benefiting from that placement program. Yeah. So the statistics, our goal was that we would retain 100% of our workforce. That was one of our KPIs. And our other one was that we would, we, we stated very publicly and very boldly that we would have uh, a job offer for 90% of our workforce. So we did achieve the retention. We did have a hundred percent retention of the people that we wanted to keep. There's always people that we were, I know, you know, there's always, there's always, um, you know, terminations that happen, but we kept the workforce that we needed to keep. Uh, the second KPI, which was 90% of our people to have a job offer before the games were over, uh, you will remember that September 11th happened about six months prior to the games. And with that event, there was a, um, some fear in the market and there was some um, downturn in the economy. And so people were, they didn't have as many jobs. So we did not meet the 90%, but we did have 60% of our folks who had a job offer before the games um, ended. Now, the interesting thing about how we phrase that is we didn't say we would we would um, commit to having 90% of our workforce with a job. 
because we couldn't control what people did or didn't want to accept or commit to. We could just create some uh, activity, um, energy, uh, movement around job offers. We could drum up and generate the activities that would result in job offers. Um, but again, 60% versus 90%. So of course, disappointing, but also it, it felt like a success. And the, the feedback that we received from people uh, who were impacted by it was all so positive. Everybody felt like they had gained something. Even if it wasn't a job, it was um, some insight and direction about going to school or some inspiration to go in a different direction with their career. Or everybody had this fallback of the retention pay, which was an enormous benefit, a generous benefit that was through really great fiscal management um, at the Olympic Committee. I want to come back to something you mentioned just a few moments ago that, I mean, really, when it comes to this, this retention and placement, no organizing committee has done it better than Salt Lake. Right. And, um, and I don't think anybody's even really come close, to be no. quite honest with you. I mean, that's a, that's a tribute to the vision, but I think it's primarily a tribute to the people who implemented it. You included, and you've already mentioned a few of those people from uh, Ed and Darren and Tam and, and, Tam, uh, and, uh, and Alice in Paradise. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about the people for a second, if I might. Who are some of the people that you worked with that you found particularly, well, hilarious or they were super inspiring? Who were some of these people that you worked with that you just you really treasured that experience working with them? Oh, I I have to say I felt at the time and I still feel now like I was the luckiest employee in the building because I had to get to know everybody in the building as part of my job in order for me to figure out the right way to help and the right way to manage this program. I had to get to know everybody. I had to know where they wanted to go and what they wanted to do and what they were capable of. And, um, some of the things that they had done at their current job, I really felt so lucky because I, I felt like I knew everybody in the building. Uh, so in terms of who was I inspired by truly by everybody. Um, my boss there was Tammy B. Van. Um, and she was one of the, she was one of the best bosses I've ever had. She was a good person through and through and one of the smartest people I've ever worked with. So she was really, really focused on the impact on the consumer of what we were doing, which was the slock employee. So I found her to be very inspiring. I worked around, I sat around people who were really funny. Um, I, I felt like I was adopted into some of the groups that I sat near. So, I mean, I was, I felt like I was adopted into many of the little um, pods on the 13th floor um, that, that were not necessarily the same group that I was in, but adjacent HR groups that I was in. Um, I mean, I just, you know, I talked to the marketing team a lot. I talked to the, uh, what was, um, what was the name of Verena's group? With Yes, yes, yes. So her group. Yeah. So I sat near her group and uh, that whole team was just hilarious and so much fun. Um, I, I felt like everybody in the building was a lot of fun. I loved going to work. I loved being there. I loved getting to know people. 
I felt the same way. I felt the same way. Now, to be honest, I thought you were going to tell everyone that I was one of those people that inspired <laughs> you, but... But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm you know, saving that for the end. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am just kidding. I'm just kidding. You were, you were integral to our program succeeding because we needed some things that had never been done before. And it required a few different things being built for us technolo- technologically. Um, it required some, uh, some, bolt-ons and some layering and some things that were really hard to do. And you were the one that did those. You actually are the one that made so much of it possible because we couldn't have managed the numbers that we had without some systems in place. And you built those systems. You're kind of one of the major reasons that we were uh, successful to the degree that we were. Well, that's very kind of you, Lisa, and I will happily pay for that compliment <laughs> right. uh, with, with lunch at Gourmandise or something whenever oh, you get back to Salt Lake. Yes, yes. Well, Lisa, before we wrap up everything, um, any other particularly uh, inspiring memories or you mentioned the challenge of 9-11, but were there any other challenges that you faced and did you have to devise any creative solutions to resolve those challenges? I think one of the challenges that we was that we always needed to be scrappy, that we were we had uh, tight budgets for a good reason. And so I thought the way people worked together and solved problems created some of the best solutions. One of the examples that we had in, in the area that I worked was uh, there was a, a meeting, I guess it was a marketing meeting. And somebody said, we have $800,000 of VIK in the, in USA today, something like that. I could be wrong on the number, but it was a high number. Um, who wants it? And then I heard about this and I thought to myself, I want it. I want that money because, um, we'll totally figure out how to use it. And so we wrote a, proposal or pitch. Here's what we want the money for. We want to use it to advertise, you know, for people to offer jobs to our employees. And we got it. Somehow, miraculously, we got it in the um, job transition program. So we worked with monster.com. They created ads for us and we ran ads in the USA Today um, in their look and feel that they had, which was something along the lines of our 1,200 employees um, are are losing their jobs soon, hire, hire them fast before somebody else does something along those lines. Anyway, I still have the copy of that somewhere, but we ran those ads. They were half page ads that they ran two different times. And they actually ran more than that because the, we were at the mercy of USA Today to tell us when we could run them because they were VIK. We didn't get to choose the day that we ran them and they ran them on days that were, uh, just, um, oddly enough very poor choices. So um, value and kind doesn't really actually equal value and kind if you don't get to choose. So the days they chose for us were September 11th and the day after Thanksgiving. And I said, that uh, is not really okay um, because that means absolutely exactly zero people will see the ad and we will get have gotten exactly zero dollars of value out of that. So they did actually run them again for us twice. 
So the, the September 11th was of course a total accident and we didn't know it until after the fact. Um, but the Thanksgiving day after Thanksgiving was, you know, we were just like, you know, people aren't looking for job placement. They're looking for black Friday sales. So that's not a good day. So they did actually run them again, but that was one of the interesting things. Wow. That is really interesting. I have a question for you. Some of the people that we've talked to, they had roles that they did pre-games and then they had different roles at games time. They had operational roles. So, you know, a lot of the HR staff, for example, became HR venue managers and they worked out on the venues. But then there were some people who just maintained their role mm. throughout both the pre-games and during the games and post-games. What was your situation? And in your view, what were the benefits and challenges associated with it? I had the same role um, pre-games and through games. And so the the change during games time was that when we had companies or organizing committees in town, I was trying to connect people with those organizing committees. We had established that, that which we had established, which people on our workforce wanted to work for which games, which, which, you know, Olympic committee and which companies that might be in town. So there was a lot of me trying to make those connections for folks and trying to do that when, uh, people's first priority was where were they supposed to be for the games? And, and when I say people's, I mean, both the organizing committees that were there, but also the, the, our staff that was wanting to make those connections. So that was a bit of a challenge. Uh, and, um, it made it a little bit difficult. Uh, and it got easier as the games went on, people got into a rhythm and they got into their, um, they had things on a, you know, automatic cadence. So it got easier as the games went on, but that's, I basically did the same thing. Well, I was like that too. I, I did not have a different games time operational role. I had just my same old role. Mm -hmm. And there are some times I'd look back and think, man, maybe I should have taken an opportunity to have a different games time operational role. But at the same time, we really felt that we were going to be needed during games right. time to support all the systems that had been implemented. As it turns out, we didn't need to do that much support. And the blessing was I got to see a lot of events. <laughs> so yeah, that's so that was, a, that was a huge, that was a huge blessing. Well, for you, working for the Salt Lake Organizing Committee was not the end of your career in the event space, but was a beginning. So you have done lots of really amazing and interesting things since you, well, since you left the organized committee there in Salt Lake. What was for you the legacy of those games, both personally and professionally? I think the legacy of those games is that it, it shaped the way I view what work should be. The culture of the games, the, 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 the high performing team was... Uh, it set a really high bar that's actually hard to replicate. I feel like I felt like at the time and I feel like now uh, at the time, I remember thinking, oh, I'm too young to have the um, this, you know, career pinnacle. I'm too young to have this good of a, an experience in my career because I know not all jobs are like this. Um, and that's kind of been true, but it but it has actually change the way I do look for a job. So I look for the energy of the people and the creativity and the, um, you know, the possibilities that are there versus the, 
the job title or the the location or whatever. Um, it really matters to me, the energy of the people. If you've got creative people, if you have good people, your experience is exponentially better than some of the other check boxes that may have been important to me before that. But yeah, I would say, I would say probably impacted every one of our careers from then, from that point forward, because it was such a good experience. Well, for me, an important legacy of the games was finding out that A, you knew what able skeevers were, <laughs> B, you knew how to cook them, and C, <laughs> you invited me over to your place and we had able skeevers and they were delicious. And I will remember that. That was my that huge was, legacy. That was in Greece, right? That's right. That was in Athens. That was in Athens. We had a group over. Yeah, I remember. Yep. yep. Able Skeevers. There Abel we go. Skeevers. It's my fa- they're my favorite. I love Able Skeevers. Okay. As I mentioned before we started our call, I've got three assignments for you, as I have for everyone who participates on our podcast. And the first assignment has to do with music. So, Lisa, is there a song, or it could be songs, could be more than one, but is there a song that maybe you had it on your CD player all the time, or maybe you heard it in a competition, but is there a song that just totally reminds you of 2002? Oh, yes. I cannot hear uh, Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer without thinking of the closing ceremonies. I think that's an excellent choice. If I remember, Jamie Shaw, our friend Jamie Shaw, is a huge Bon Jovi fan, so she hasn't interviewed on this podcast yet. She'll be disappointed that she wasn't able to choose. I I don't know if you took that one being that her song, but I know she's a huge Bon Jovi fan, so I'm happy to add it to the list. We have a Spotify playlist called Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective, and all of the songs that everybody nominates are included on that playlist. So you have to check that one out. You can see all the other choices people have. Yes, you better add Leanne Rimes' Light the Fire Within as well. Okay, so I got two for the price of one. We'll put Leanne Rimes' Light the Fire Within. That's an iconic. Nobody uh, said that yet? Nobody has said it. Nobody has said it. My word. Now, some people have mentioned the the motto, life, or the saying, right? The light, light the, the fire, fire within, but they have not mentioned the actual song. So we'll add that to the playlist. All right. My next question that I ask everyone is about food. Is there a particular restaurant that you like to go to? It could have been for breakfast or maybe for lunch uh, with slock friends or maybe for dinner after work. Uh, but is there a restaurant that you like to go to all the time? There was a there was a cafe that made the best grilled cheese in the world to me at the time. Uh, was it the Globe? Is it the Globe? Yes, the Globe, the Globe Cafe, right across the street. You mentioned before, right? So there's the Globe. Um, there was a place that made an amazing Greek salad that was on Third and Third, and maybe it was no, it was on Second and Fifth or Second and Fourth. Oh yeah, Great what was that salad. Greek restaurant? What was that called? I don't know. I'll have to. I'll have to look. I can't remember, but I'll yeah. look at it. And and what I'm doing is I'm creating a map. So I got a map on my website <laughs> where I have all these places cool. that people have nominated. So you can go along. You can look on the map. You can. It's a Google map. You can go and look on it, and you can see uh, all the different places that people have nominated. Oh, I do great. have to say, as a side note. Um, we mentioned Athens and you work there in Athens and I work there as well. Yes. And um, last summer I had opportunity to take my wife and daughter ah. to Athens. Oh. oh, how was it? And um, my wife got a Greek salad that to this day, she's like, man, that was like the freshest salad I've ever had in my <laughs> life. It was so amazing. And it, it was just like somebody just went in the garden, picked the vegetables and it was awesome. Greek food's awesome. So I'm That's glad so you nominated. Good. 
Glad you nominated yes. the Greek restaurant. Okay, to wrap us up, is there a memory you have? It could have been a competition. It could have been something behind the scenes. Could have been before games. Could have been during or even after the games that you just really cherish and you think to this day when it comes to your mind. Wow, that that was uh, that was a goosebump moment for me. All right, so my I I would say there were so many goosebump moments from the one-on-one interactions with people and hearing that they had gotten a job offer that they'd been waiting for or hearing that they were accepted into graduate school or just them thanking me for what I had done, which I felt like it was just doing my job, but people were super kind. Those were all goosebump moments. I think other goosebump moments would have been in the opening and closing ceremonies In the opening ceremonies when uh, Sting and the Mormon Tabernacle Choir were singing together. Uh, I thought that was beautiful. Uh, the, the, what are they called? The children of light. Is that what they were called? I think that's right. I mean, it sounds a little weird now, but you know, the, the children with the lanterns and, and just the very sweet and, um, uh, nice feeling that that brought into the stadium. There were so many moments in the stadium that were, you know, just bringing people together. It was a gathering of just good intention, spirit, athleticism. It was just a great feeling. And the closing ceremony was equally, um, equally uh, goosebumpy for me as well. You know, the games, I, I think our jobs extended a couple months after the closing ceremonies, but I still remember feeling like this is a loss. This is a transition. Um, and it's been so good. So, you know, a lot of moments of impact and transition in that short amount of time that we worked for the Olympics. Yeah, it was. It was interesting. I remember that closing ceremony for me, it felt like the beginning of the end, you know, mm-hmm. um, now for some people, Right after closing ceremony, they were done. Yes. And some people, they worked till the end of the Paralympic Games. And then as soon as the Paralympic Games closing ceremony was over, they were done. And then some people stayed around longer because they needed to do some wrap up stuff with the dissolution of the committee and and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. but I knew that when those uh, closing ceremonies were over, that there were some people who were going to leave and I might not even see them again. You know, like, right. And and that was hard. It was hard. It was very joyous. But at the same time, it was uh, it was a bit depressing in some ways, you know, to have it end. Yes. Because of what we mentioned before, which the culture of those games were the kind of culture you would always want to work in. But the reality is not every organization is like the Olympic committee, The the caliber of people that were brought together, the level of talent, the level, the level of, um, team player that, that was in each person there. It, made it a great organization. That's, that doesn't come around every day. It doesn't. I actually haven't found it quite like it uh, in any other organization that I've worked for. Now I've been staying in this space in this event space. And so, you know, I haven't really seen the equivalent out there in the corporate world, but, but um, certainly in this event space, I don't think that the Salt Lake games has been equaled. Now that's not to say that, you know, games in London or Vancouver or whatever had bad organized committees. It's quite the contrary. I mean, they had excellent committees in their own right, but I think that Salt Lake games uh, for me, and part of it might be hometown bias, but the, the Salt Lake games for me um, were 
spectacularly unique. I think your point of hometown bias might be interesting to explore. I think it is more than hometown bias. I do find that that kind of a culture is rare. And I was a consultant for about 10 years after the games and worked in a lot of large global big brand companies where you would want that culture to be there. And and there's still something lacking. There's still something missing. So I don't know. I would, I think that would be an interesting question to explore on one of your calls is, you know, is it just a hometown bias or was the culture really uh, the, the, you know, one of the best organizations we've ever worked for, which there's a subjective nature to that. But, you know, we've all been in a lot of different organizations where we stack it up against others and it's really hard to find. So what what do we owe that to? Yeah, I don't know, but I hope that we can capture lightning in a bottle again should Salt Lake be selected to host another games. And uh, Wouldn't that be fun? That would be a huge amount of fun. That would be fun. Uh, I know there's part of a kind of get the old band back together, but there's also, I think, an opportunity to infuse a lot of new young talent, just like we had yes. in Salt Lake 2002, that could create something amazing and leave a legacy for the next generation. Yes. Oh, that would be very fun. Yeah, be kind of a nice way to end things for me anyway. Well, Lisa, it's been fantastic having you here on our podcast today. Thank you so much for carving out some time out of your very busy schedule. If people want to get in touch with you and learn more about what you're doing these days, how might they best do that? Oh, I would love that. Um, LinkedIn direct message. I'm on Facebook. I'm I'm findable. Um, and I would love to hear from anyone. All right, Lisa, thank you so much. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast. Thank you. So fun to chat.